Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining us. Our interview guest today is Cindy Parlo Cohn, the U.S. soccer president who's running for re-election next month. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including on-site coverage of every U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the news in the soccer world. We'll have Cindy Parlo Cohn in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Doing all right. Gorging on Champions League football. It's uh, it's been a tremendous midweek. Good to have it back. It is great to have it back. It's it's two months between the end of the Champions League group stage and the knockout rounds. It's a long withdrawal, my friend, and I I don't enjoy it. I'm excited when it comes back, even if my initial reaction is sort of like. It's still the first leg, and so there's typically nothing too definitive unless it's Man City and Sporting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a hammering, wasn't it? But it is still good to have Champions League back, in part because so many of the title races are seemingly decided or close to being decided in the big European domestic leagues. Here we've got real competition. Let's start with Wednesday's games. Salzburg won, Bayern won. For me, the more intriguing of the two games today, even though the other one was Inter-Liverpool. And I don't know if Salzburg's going to win this in the end, right? It's still, they got to go to Bayern. They're 1-1. This may end up being a moral victory. But man, Salzburg, Brendan Aronson, assist on the goal. Good stuff. Yeah, and Salzburg in that second half, I mean, normally I would in their domestic league, they're the ones that attack. They're the ones that go at their opponents, and yet they had like 27% of the ball or something right. and looked fairly resolute. I mean, Bayern had their chances. They're going to get their chances. They're an amazing team, but... Salzburg looked like they were up for it, and I was watching on the Spanish language feed, and the commentator was saying that he felt that Salzburg were pretty hard done by to concede that goal late in the day. If you're thinking in the pre, I guess, yeah, in in, in the away goals era, a 1-0 would have been massive, because if Salzburg get an away goal, then all of a sudden Bayern have to hit for three. Of course, they're well capable of hitting for three, but you know, a 1-0 as it was, was a tremendous result. I would say, heading into this round, that was the tie that felt like it was going to be most out of the question and ended up being City Sporting that answered that question. But for me, when you look at this game, all credit to Salzburg and how they were able to approach the game in a way that's different than what they're used to and still grinded out a result when a lot of people thought that they'd lose three or four nil. Yeah, nice goal in the first half from Salzburg and then just a ton of work. And you know they're capable of it, but keep in mind, they just started playing competitive games again recently. They Mm -hmm. take a lot of time off for their winter break. That was an issue with Brendan Aronson for the last round of World Cup qualifiers. He hadn't played any competitive games in a while. And yet they came to play here. And I would have thought that Bayern might have been upset to an extent after losing to Bochum in the Bundesliga over the weekend. And... You didn't really see that. And I do think they miss Manuel Neuer, uh, who's out injured and is still a terrific goalkeeper. They are not quite the same team when he's not in there. And in the end, I think what happened on Bayern's goal in the 90th minute was Salzburg finally tired out a little bit. They didn't put any pressure on the ball, on the server, 
And then the ball goes in. Muller, who has this way about him of getting to to balls, flicks it over, and Kingsley Coman finishes. And probably deserved in the end for Bayern based on the way the second half went. But look, I, I'd love to see Salzburg. I, I have you know a soft spot in my heart for Salzburg, and so I was kind of hoping they would have gotten out of this one nil. Yeah, I mean it would have been a massive result for them. So uh, for sure, when you look at the way that they performed in that game, what underdogs they were going in, it would have just been huge for them to head into that second leg with a clean sheet. But as it is, still a really impressive result. They give themselves a chance. Now, you kind of imagine that Bayern, you know, the the likely result is like 4-0 at the Allianz or something like that. Like they're just, they're going to make easy work of it in three weeks' time. But, you know, they're they're making them sweat. And I I don't, I think that's a lot more than you could have said for Salzburg going in. You mentioned this Van Ulrich point. That's really important when you look at the way that he gave up for to Bochum. Not all entirely his fault, but they're a different team without Neuer. I, I think we've seen that in years previous. And it's not just about his quality as a goalkeeper. It's about the quality of their buildup, especially against a team like Salzburg that are going to put you under some pressure. They're going to run at you. They're going to throw the, their incredibly young team at you to try and win the ball back. You want to have an experienced, cool head back there. And while Ulrich is 33, that's not really a skill set. So uh, Bayern definitely miss Manuel Neuer. And we'll, I guess, continue to see that probably manifest in the Bundesliga. By the way, is Brandon Aronson's price continuing to go up? I mean, because they've already turned down $27 million for him from Leeds during the transfer window. And who knows? You know, maybe Leeds had an extra demand because they don't want to be relegated and that won't be the same in the summer. But Brendan Aronson's profile just continues to rise. And it's really neat to see him having a role in truly big games like this. Let's talk about the other uh, Champions League game on Wednesday. Inter nil, Liverpool 2. And a bit of a deceiving scoreline. Liverpool scores on two second-half set pieces. Inter didn't play that badly. Probably thinking there's a missed opportunity here. And yet, some of the talk afterwards is about, well, this shows the gulf between the Premier League and the rest of the leagues in Europe. I don't know if I totally buy that. Like this whole idea of like, well, the great teams, even when they're not playing well, find ways to win. I guess it was two set piece goals. Liverpool's good at set pieces, but I like it was interesting to hear the CBS broadcast like basically <laughs> saying Italy's not even close to the English Premier League, <laughs> you know, and, and CBS owns the rights to Syria. Huh? <laughs> uh, but it, I, I agree that it doesn't really reflect how the game went. I thought that Inter were really good on the day. We're really good coming out of halftime. If you had said after the first 20, 25 minutes of the second half, who is the more likely to get the goal here? I would have said Inter. And yet it's funny because I believe you look at the post-match stats. I looked at it fairly late in the match, and, and I would imagine it stayed the same, that Inter did not register a shot on target. They did not. They finished without a single shot on target in the game. But they had, you know, territory. They had, you know, the positional play. They were in good positions to score goals. Hakan Chalanoglu hit the, the, the crossbar with a really good chance. And so... You kind of do feel that Inter were hard done by. I thought that that was not at all. When you watch that second half, that wasn't 2-0 to Liverpool. That was 0-0. That was 1-0 to Inter. But like you said, the good teams get results even when they're not playing well. Cliche holds up here. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Inter still gave Liverpool a go in that second leg. I think these, these are two interestingly matched up teams. I think Inter is 
capable of competing with Liverpool on their day. I wouldn't be surprised if they got an early goal and made a fist of it in the second leg. But um, you are still probably heading towards territory where, you know, the Champions League will at least have three English teams in that quarterfinal, if not probably, I mean, maybe four. We saw Atletico Madrid lost today to Levante, the side bottom of La Liga, and they play Manchester United in the next round. Not that Manchester United are in good form, but those are a pair of teams on a rotten run of form. And I mean, honestly, I might even slightly favor Manchester United at the moment, given, you know, Atletico Madrid's points tally in Spain. But uh, either way, you're heading towards a multitude of English teams heading towards the quarterfinal, and I kind of wonder if this might be the period for English dominance in the Champions League. I, I think you're probably right with that, and that may be a big storyline heading out of this round of play is how many English teams are still around. Um, I almost went down the road tonight. I'm in Italy, so I'm in Venice. Uh, story TK um, in terms of uh, <laughs> down the road. Uh, I'll, I'll talk more about it then, but... Um, you know, it's about a three-hour drive down to Milan. If if I had never been to San Siro, I might have gone tonight. I have been in San Siro for a game a few years ago. But um, it's good to be in Italy. Just got here today. Uh, I'm a little brain fog right now because <laughs> we're recording this uh, nearly midnight uh, Italian time and coming out quickly. But um it's good to be in a soccer culture. I, 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 it's my first time in Venice. You know, I, I never thought I would come to Venice for the first time, not on vacation with my spouse as opposed to for soccer. But here I am. So um, going to spend a few days in Italian soccer culture, which is always good. Uh, let's talk about the Tuesday Champions League games. And the big headliner, obviously, PSG 1, Real Madrid 0. And it seems like this happens now once, twice, maybe three times a season that Kylian Mbappe does something absolutely ridiculous and becomes like the main talking point of world soccer. And that's what happened at the end of this game. He created something out of nothing, uh, continued to embarrass certain Real Madrid defenders. Donny Carvajal had a bad day. That was before he went out. And then his replacement got smoked as well. And... Late goal gives PSG the one goal advantage. I don't think they're in now or anything like that because Real Madrid didn't really seem to be trying to score much in this game and would have been perfectly happy, away goals rule no longer exists, to get out of there with a nil-nil. But Real Madrid obviously is capable of scoring goals in the return leg if they want to try. I don't. I don't understand why they didn't try and score goals against Paris Saint-Germain. It's not like this is a defensively stout team. It's not like this is a well-balanced team. It's not like this is a well-structured team. Go with them. You hate PSG. You absolutely hate PSG. Every I, podcast I, we do. <laughs> I just, I, I don't think that their model of building a team is going to be successful in the long run. Like they're like having three stars up front. And I mean, they've also spent a shed load on the rest of the team, like Donnarumma and Hakimi and Marco Verratti is a good player. So I'm not, I'm not saying that they haven't spent money in other places, but they don't have like, like three attackers who don't run and don't defend. Like, I just don't think that works. So I, I'm just surprised. Like, obviously you're concerned about the threat of their attackers. They're amazing. Mbappe is amazing. And he proved every reason why you should be scared of him. But 
I, I just I think that they play with far too much fear here, and I would imagine that they'll come out and attack PSG in the second leg, and they'll probably score some goals because they're vulnerable to being scored on. But on the Mbappe front, I really find it interesting that even in this era of social media, all the highlights get shared. Anytime Mbappe does anything, he can, in theory, make headlines. Playing in the French League is still... You're not going to command attention on a week-in and week-out basis. He only grabs the headlines in continental or global competition, either in the Euros, in the Champions League, or at the World Cup. But week in and week out, you know, it's just not the same of him. You know, of him playing, particularly in the states on a on a channel that not a lot of people get, that not a lot of people are watching on a on on a soccer weekend. So he makes these headlines in these moments because like, oh, we get to see Mbappe now. Even though he's, it's available, you don't really watch him. So he does kind of somewhat do his work in the shadows, which is why maybe one of the reasons why he's considering so strongly moving to Real Madrid is that obviously his weekly movements will be more scrutinized and more paid attention to. But I mean, my goodness, like every time it's like, it still takes your breath away how quick he is and how skillful he is and how smart he is and how it just it, the complete package of a player that he is. I actually think that he's like, it's sometimes fairly wasteful in front of goal. He could score even like he could hit the Ronaldo Messi numbers in terms of goal scoring on a regular basis. But my God, when he's on, it's just terrible. Poor Danny Carvajal. He had no chance. He had no chance for 90 minutes. I felt bad for him a little yeah. bit. Yeah. You know, because this is like an elite game, and he was just getting absolutely destroyed for a minute one. What are you supposed basically. to do? <laughs> but I think you're you're right to an extent. I mean, like in their domestic league, it's the fifth best domestic league in Europe. They happen to have Messi, Mbappe, and Neymar playing in this fifth best domestic league in Europe. And do I think PSG is capable of winning Champions League? I think they're capable of it. I don't think they're going to. And so then it becomes a question, like, should he go to Real Madrid? I, I think the likelihood is that he will. Our friends at El Chiringuito certainly seem to uh, <laughs> enjoy a Real Madrid loss more than they typically do uh, on Tuesday <laughs> and are, are going nuts about it and actually seem to take pleasure that Messi missed a penalty or failed to convert. Um, how are we supposed to feel about Messi's performance? Because I saw people all over the map on this one. Sid Lowe thought he actually had a good game. Lekeep just roasted Messi with their ratings. You know, I, I think sometimes when somebody fails to convert a penalty, we then sort of take that and use that to look at their entire performance for the 90 minutes. And I think that's a little unfair. Messi's like an average penalty taker. He's not good. He's not bad. He just makes about what the average is, about 70%. Right. It's the only area of his game in which he's an average player. But I think, you know, if you're talking about French coverage, like I do sort of wonder if maybe the French perception is based off of how he has not really delivered very much in terms of goal scoring or assist providing during his time in Paris. Like he's actually been, from a production standpoint, significantly down from any point of his career since like the very beginning. Uh, he's only got two goals in Ligue 1. He's got five goals in the Champions League. You know, two came two came in a whole match against Club Brugge. So it's not like he's produced. And so he gets a moment at the end to, you know, put PSG 1-0 up and he misses the penalty. When, I mean, honestly, it feels like Mbappe's penalty for how well he was playing in that game. Like you kind of got to let him take it, especially when Messi, I think now uh, I heard on the Guardian Football Weekly that, uh, he now leads the world 
in or all time in penalty misses in competitive matches with 30. Second is Cristiano Ronaldo with 29. Uh, that you know could be a function of how many penalties are given now or how many penalties they take. But still, like he's missed a lot of penalties. But it, I, I think I, I think Messi was fine on the day. But when he's not kind of bossing the game in these moments. You don't you don't get Lionel Messi to boss a game against Montpellier in January. You get him for these games, and so I do think that perhaps there is that weight of expectation for him. He's just not really he hasn't really delivered much during his time in Paris. I think that's fair at this point, and yet so much of how we view his performance and his team's performance for this season is going to be decided in what comes ahead including in the return leg here. And, and and by the way, I think we should mention Thibaut Courtois, who was absolutely terrific in this game, in goal, until the ball goes through his legs on the goal in the 90th minute. But you can't fault him for the defending there or the superhuman exploits of Kylian Mbappe. I mean, he is a hulking figure in the goal. Like, it is so impressive when you just see him standing there, arms up, almost like feet behind the goal line, and he's just kind of standing with his arms up, and it's like, how, Wando. Are, how, how are you? How are you supposed to? <laughs> well, poor Wando. Uh, it's Sorry. like, how are you supposed to get the ball beyond this guy? And it just kind of felt like he was too big for Messi to squeeze a penalty beyond him. And sure enough, he makes a save. And what a player he is! But yeah, I mean, it's it's one bad moment at the end. Otherwise, it's a it's a stunning clean sheet for him. Sporting nil, Man City five. Do we have anything to say about this? I actually do. I'm I'm sort of amazed. <laughs> That after the game, both I think Pep Guardiola and Bernardo Silva like talked about the poor aspects of their performance. Like, well, no, we weren't, <laughs> weren't really controlled enough in possession. We didn't really play our game that well. We just happened to score a bunch of goals. And it's fascinating to me, like the standards to which they hold themselves and how they don't necessarily base the game on or, or the quality of their performance on the amount of goals that they scored or the number of goals they conceded. Like, I find interesting that this seems to be like a growing theme that, you know, performance and, you know, like Greg, Greg Berhalter after the Canada game said that they played really well and they still lost. He dominated. Said, he dominated and they and, and they still dominated. lost. Like that managers are now kind of openly talking about, yeah, we lost 5-0, but I felt like there was aspects of the performance that could be improved upon. But obviously, it's ridiculously impressive the goals that they did score. The, the, the clinicality in those attacking moments is great, but I'm just sort of fascinated that that was sort of something that they banged on about. It almost seems like ungrateful in a way. Like you're on your way to like an 8-0 aggregate win. What are you complaining about? I, I would go so far as to call it performance art pun intended (laughs) because it's a little over the top and i think they're laying it on a little too thick like at a certain point if you're man city and you just won at sporting five nil in champions league i think it's a little disrespectful to your opponent to say yeah actually we didn't play that great yeah i mean you're, right? you're, like you said, yeah, like you're you're laying it on thick, like oh, we hold ourselves to really high standards, and it's not nothing is ever good enough, and, and yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit ridiculous. We should say the, the quality of some of the goals they scored were tremendous. Bernardo Silva, the one that he ripped off the underside of yeah. the crossbar, Raheem Sterling's fifth, he scored a great one as well at the weekend in their win over Norwich. I've not seen Raheem Sterling go on a run of scoring goals like. Raheem Sterling's finishing is almost entirely based on how good he is at positioning himself, the cleverness of his runs. Like, it's never he's a brilliant finisher, and so he just uncorks a curler from 25 yards out right into a corner. Like, 
I, I was stunned with both of the goals that he scored uh, in this last week. And if he hits a patch of that sort of form, it's just like, where the limitless options. Kevin De Bruyne is not even really in form right now for Manchester City, and yet they're somehow still hitting for these number of goals for fun. Yeah, They tried yesterday playing John Stones at right back, which I thought was interesting, partially because Kyle Walker was out suspended. But, you know, like they've got a bunch of different ways. The question remains, are they going to remain consistent? Are they not going to do ridiculous things once we get into the business end of the competition? And... Can they finally win the European trophy that the quality of their team merits? Because they're right now, when you watch them week in, week in, week out, are probably the best team in Europe. Yeah, I think all that's fair. Um, we'll see if they can actually do it in the end. And this tie appears to be over, but there's a lot of soccer left to be played in this Champions League. There's another Champions League that's going on too. CONCACAF Champions League, yeah. Chris. The biggest and- club competition in the world. And I love this tournament, so I don't care what you say. But um, New England is already through because their Haitian opponent apparently didn't get the visas uh, to be able to come into the U.S., which is kind of a bummer just to have the knockout rounds of CONCACAF's showpiece club tournament do this. Uh, But New York City did get a two-goal win on the road at one Santos, Another Santos, Santos Laguna, had a late goal to get a 1-0 advantage against Montreal down in Torreon. Um, anything stand out to you? Is this the last we see of Tati Castellanos for New York City? Well, there's a, a lot of reporting about what's going on with the negotiations between him and River Plate right now because they reportedly want to pay $11.5 million for 50% of his rights, um, which does kind of disincentivize the team from wanting to sell on because if you got to give 50%, then you're not really making a ton of profit. So, I mean, if you're New York City or Tati Castellanos, it's probably not the transfer that you dreamt of, right? That he would go to, like, you'd figure after winning the Golden Boot at his age, he'd go to Europe and, you know, go and play for, you know, a Serie A team. But that move didn't happen during the European window. Um, But I actually think that there's a chance that he might stay, that New York City might hold out for a summer transfer when it's more likely that, you know, teams could be in for him. You can start to succession plan for him. A bear, hopefully, will we'll get back to full fitness for, for New York City. But solid result for them. Certainly looked like a team that was playing their first competitive match of the season, which happens sometimes. I thought Montreal were up for it. I, I watched uh, as much of that game as I could until I fell asleep. But, um, you know, Montreal, I thought, put in a good performance away from home. They actually went 1-0 up before a foul in the buildup uh, disallowed, to the goal, uh, disallowed the goal on VAR, uh, which VAR was certainly a bit of a journey in CONCACAF, including in that game where... A Romel Kyoto chance was ruled offside, despite the fact that a Santos Laguna player passed the ball backwards to Romel Kyoto. It was still given as offside, and it's like, come on, lads! Like, it's right, exactly. It's like, come on, lads. But uh, yeah, I think Montreal. I mean, one 0 is not a bad result, despite the fact that right. that, that they didn't get an away goal. Um, heading back uh, to Montreal would certainly give them a chance uh, to proceed in the competition. And uh, we wait until Thursday when uh, the other two entrants into the CONCACAF Champions League will will give their go. Yeah, not much for me to add there. You know, I am always interested in this tournament and sort of the Charlie Brown and Lucy in the football situation of MLS when it comes to not winning the CONCACAF Champions League year after year after year after year. I could say that a few more times. Um 
let's let's get it done, MLS. I don't know if this is the year, but like, why not? It, it's it's as good a year as any when you look at the teams that aren't in it, right? You don't have America, you don't have the two Monterrey teams. So uh, really, the, the the favorites are probably Cruz Azul and uh, and Leon, who got towards uh, the final stages of. Uh, the most recently played Apertura in Mexico. So uh, those are probably your two strong teams. Pumas had a good regular season uh, as well. Uh, they, they will get going after we're finished recording this. So uh, yeah, I mean, obviously the Mexican teams are always going to be the favorites, but they're not exactly the blue bloods that we've come to expect. And also the Mexican transfer market has kind of gone down a little bit uh, after the pandemic. They're not kind of spending on the level uh, that uh, that they were before, so maybe the, the the level of quality has dropped, but that only gets measured in this competition. All right, my friend. Good talking to you as always. Thank you. Thanks, Grant. Now here's my interview with Cindy Parlo Cone. Our guest now is U.S. Soccer President Cindy Parlo Cone. As a player, she won one World Cup title, two Olympic gold medals, and three NCAA titles. As a coach, she won an NWSL title with the Portland Thorns. She's currently a coach and director of coaching at North Carolina FC Youth. Parlo Cohn and former Federation President Carlos Cordero are the two candidates for U.S. Soccer President with the election taking place March 5th. Cindy, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, and you improved my record in that intro. Thank you very much. I didn't know I'd won a third national championship as a player at U.S. Are you serious? Yeah, only won two, but I would gladly accept a third. That's just terrible journalism on my part. My apologies, but um, I will... Make sure we correct the record here, but uh, still very impressive career, obviously, as a player. And obviously, you've been doing things since then uh, all over the place in the world of soccer. And I want to start this interview with a basic question for you. U.S. soccer president is at times kind of a thankless job. It's an unpaid position. At times? <laughs> I stuck the at times in there at the end. It's an unpaid position. It requires investing a lot of time. You do get some perks, but a lot of fans and people inside and outside the membership complain about what you're doing. Why did you want to be the U.S. soccer president? Yeah, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's really hard, and it is thankless a lot of the time, you know, but... I was very fortunate. I, I grew up playing this game. Um, my dad was my first coach, and I was one of the lucky ones that it was able uh, to advance my game to, to play in college and then to play on the national team and win the awards that you spoke about. Um, even though I got a third third national championship in there, I'll have to call Anson up and let him know that we won another one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's a... It's a huge part of my life. This game is a part of my life, and I am the person I am today, the leader I am today, because of the what this game has given me. Um, and I, I want to make sure that every kid has the opportunity um, to play this game. Um, you, you know, I just feel like we there's so much more work to do, which is why I'm running again. Um, and despite all the challenges we have faced, I think I've led the organization with integrity and honesty. Um, and I took on this role and I'm running uh, because I believe in this game. I believe in the future of this game and what this game can do um, for people engaged in it. Um, and U.S. soccer, um, when I took over, was in a really bad place. Um, 
And, you know, sponsors were threatening to leave. Uh, The players were angry. At least half of the country was angry at U.S. soccer. Um, And so I've really put my heart and soul in the last two years in in building U.S. soccer back up, plugging the holds, um, moving from one crisis to the next, rebuilding relationships with the players, with our sponsors. Um, And now we're moving in a good direction. Um, Not to say there's not still a lot of work to do. There is. Um, but I feel like we're in a moving in a good direction and I, I I think I'm the right person to continue leading, uh, the Federation as I'm a proven leader who inspires, challenges, motivates, um, people to work for me and empower them, um, to do excellent work. So I'm really proud of the team we've built and the work we've done so far. Uh, but there still is a lot of work left to do. You've been the U.S. soccer president since rising from vice president in March of 2020 when Carlos Cordero resigned during the uproar after lawyers representing U.S. soccer made legal filings that alleged women's players were inherently inferior to men's players. What would you say are your major accomplishments as president in the past two years specifically? Yeah, I think... One of the things is not to be overlooked is the navigating the unprecedented challenges posed by COVID-19. You know, everyone in every organization, whether you're in a sports or not, we're having to make really challenging decisions um, to make sure that the future could still be bright. Um, so doing that, um, overseeing the signing of the largest sponsorship deal in U.S. history with Nike and and like and just really developing that relationship, um, you know, it was really interesting when we were presenting to Nike, I shared a thought with them that I thought I think with our partnership with Nike, we could really use the women's game to change the world, um, to bring soccer to every girl in the U.S., Um, So first starting here at home and then moving abroad to really using our game to change the world. And I kind of thought I'd get a couple chuckles um, out of them. And then they presented and they almost presented the same thing back to us. Um, So I I think it's what my point is here is it's not just the sponsorships or the dollar signs is the values and vision aligning, uh, which has been really fun. And then obviously on the business side, bringing the Federation's commercial rights back in house for the first time in I think 20 years um, is really a game changer, not only for U.S. soccer, but for our members as well. Um, Another thing I'm really proud of is significantly increasing the Federation's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging efforts, both in-house and outward-facing. And then, which I've alluded to before, but rebuilding um, the relationship uh, and the trust uh, and the understanding with the senior national team players. You know, not to say that we're always going to agree, but... um, they know my level of integrity and honesty, and I think that has really helped um, in moving things forward. I know things aren't moving as fast as we would all like them to move, um, but but that is going to take time, and I think relationship building is a huge part of that. Um, and then the last thing, which isn't should, this was in no order, um, but really changing the culture at Soccer House. When I came in, you know, all the glass door reports of a toxic culture at Soccer House, um, but really coming in and uh, working to change that, you know, 
I've built teams all my life. And one thing I know about culture is it's hard to change culture um, and it's hard to build culture. And so it's every action of every single day. It's what you do. It's what you say. It's what you don't do. It's what you don't say. Um, and so really getting in, building a team and, and, and listening to our employees and really increasing our DEIB efforts um, has really been a lot of fun, been challenging, but a lot of fun and something I'm proud of. And I'm looking forward to continuing that work. Your main job every day is working at a prominent youth soccer club. What have you learned about the current state of youth soccer, the positives and the negatives from that job? Yeah, I, th- I think I think there's a lot. One, COVID, um, you know, the elite players came back pretty quickly. Um, but where we're still lagging behind is in the recreational space. And as you look at that, that's the bottom of the pyramid or the top of the funnel, whatever shape you like to work with. Um, but that's our future of our game. So losing those numbers and losing kids engaged, um, that has huge impacts down the line, um, on the field, off the field, in the stands. And so I think we need to have a concerted effort, um, to, to, to build the grassroots and to grow the game um, and to really focus on like the U10 and under recreational side, I think is something that needs to be a focus. Um, As I mentioned before, um, becoming more diverse in the youth game and making sure um, that every kid that wants to play our game has access. Um, And that may be going into the schools, that may be programs out of schools, but we need to think more creatively on how we can get a soccer ball into every kid's hand or at their feet, I guess I should say, um, (laughs) that wants to have a ball um, and to play our game. Um, I think other issues in in the youth game is the um, infighting around the elite player. Um, So players, leagues, teams moving from one alphabet soup league to another. I I think U.S. soccer can take a leadership role on this and kind of bringing the groups together and and putting rules around recruitment um, and trying to put things together for the good of the game. Because I think everyone engaged in the elite level will know that this infighting isn't helpful to growing the game. It isn't healthy for the kids. It's not great for the parents and it continues to drive cost up. So I think those are a few things. Um, And then the referees. I think we need to do something uh, around the treatment of referees because referee recruitment and retention, um, we're at a crisis level. Um, and, And we need to make sure that they're coming into a safe, supportive environment. Um, So I think there's a lot of things U.S. soccer can do to lead on that front as well. So Carlos Cordero said that he was asked by Federation members, especially in the youth and adult ranks, to run against you. Do you have any regrets about how you've worked with the youth and adult parts of the Federation? Yeah, I mean, I've said this before. I think one of the uh, challenges for me and and also a mistake that I made, I think one of the challenges was that... um, I was handed a federation in crisis. And so a lot of my attention was um, on that and making sure uh, that the the ship didn't sink. Um, And I think in doing that, I relied too much on the membership's um, representation on the board. 
And this isn't a knock to the reps on the board. It's just that through this, I've learned that everyone wants that connection, that one-on-one connection with the Federation. So whether it's with me or the staff, um, they want more of a one-on-one connection, which uh, was a mistake I made and I fully own it and will look to do better in the future and making sure that we, we have a fully functioning membership department that is reaching out and listening and hearing and that I'm doing more as well and going to their events more, uh, which obviously has been difficult um, with COVID. I think it's also important to know that my entire presidency has been during COVID. Um, so point taken, it's something where I can improve, you know, I was elite player, so I don't, I take constructive criticism pretty well and I'm always looking to improve and and be better. And I think this is one area that I can definitely be better in the future because, um, you know, this is where I live my life is in the youth game. And so I think the grassroots is, is something that, um, I can improve upon the relationships there because I understand the challenges and also the opportunities. The legal case between U.S. soccer and the U.S. women's national team players seems endless. You're a former U.S. women's national team player. Why has it taken so long and why hasn't a settlement been reached? Yeah, um, you know, as as a former player, you know, Grant, like this is something that's near and dear to my heart and it hasn't been for a lack of trying. And, you know... I'll give the women's national team credit as well. There has been a lot of conversations and where both sides are trying to move it forward. Um, things never happen as quickly as you want them to, whether it's litigation, whether it's FIFA World Cup prize money equalization or CBA negotiations. So um, things are moving in a positive direction um, with that. Um, and I'm hopeful that we can resolve this um, well before trials or hearings. But um we aren't there yet. And I was going to mention uh, the collective bargaining agreements. We've been waiting a long time for new CBAs for both the men's and the women's teams. How soon do you think we'll see those get done? Yeah, I mean, I'm an ultimate optimist, but I'm hopeful that we, we've extended the deadline for the women's um, CBAs until the end of March. So I'm hopeful that we can get that done. Um, you know, obviously one of the challenges for all of us is that we've said publicly that we're not going into a CBA that doesn't equalize World Cup prize money. Um, and cause as long as FIFA, if FIFA doesn't equalize it, it's going to be up to the three groups, the men's, the women's and the U S soccer to find a way to equalize it. So that's one of the challenges. Um, and CBAs are just complex. There is a lot that goes into it. Um, there's a lot of different things and we're trying to get to one contract or at least one structure where there can be differences based on the teams. Um, but doing a, doing it in a very open and transparent way to, so inviting the men's national team PA to the women's national team bargaining and, and, and vice versa, so that everyone has an understanding of what's happening in both meetings, um, so that at the end of the day that we can get to a contract that everyone can agree to that is equal. And that takes time. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, TV rights. This is something I've reported on a little bit uh, for U.S. soccer. We haven't seen an announcement yet on the next TV rights deal you're not connected in those TV rights to MLS anymore due to not having the connection with some um, for the next deal. Um, 
where are you on that? Because what I've reported is that the current rights holders for U.S. soccer may not be involved moving forward. Yeah, you know, it's a really exciting time for soccer in the U.S. I don't I think the demand for soccer content and media rights has never been greater. Um, you know, our, our women's national team continues to be the best in the world and our, our men's national team is so dynamic and continues to build um uh, on theirs and hopefully qualifying for the World Cup at, at the end of March. Um, but this, all this coupled with the exponential growth of the sport um, leading up to the 26 World Cup um, and then future events with the Women's World Cup as well as um, extended national team World Cups, you know, we're, we're very bullish in, in the marketplace on our offering. Um, interest has been really strong and we are getting really close to finalizing our English and Spanish language media deals. Cool. Uh, I'll be looking for that. Any sort of timeline? Um, we're getting close so soon. Okay. If you wanted to break the news on this podcast, feel free. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you would love that. <laughs> Um, and you mentioned this, I think you alluded to it a second ago. Uh, there's a Women's World Cup taking place in 2027. Is there any chance that the U.S. bids to host it? Yeah, you know, we're we're doing um, some work in-house now looking at the 27 and the 31 World Cup. We'll definitely be bidding on at least one of those, if not both. Um so stay tuned. The FIFA hasn't even opened the bidding yet for the 27 World Cup. So we have a little bit of time here. I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, stuff connected to things that happened in 2020, in March of 2020. Um, and when the uproar around the legal filings in 2020 took place, several of US soccer's official sponsors went public to condemn U.S. soccer's legal strategy. And obviously some major changes took place after that. Do you think that now in this election, you are the preferred candidate of U.S. soccer's existing sponsors? Yes, I do. <laughs> you know, I, I spent a lot of my time um, from March 2020 on building relationships with our sponsors. Um, you know, because one of the... You know, some has been a, a great partner of U.S. soccer, but one of the challenges with that partnership is that we don't have the direct relationships uh, with our sponsors. And so um, we spent and, and when I say I spend all the time, right, it's a whole team effort. Um, so I don't want everyone to think it's just me doing this. Um, but we have a whole team who work towards rebuilding the trust um, and, and talking to the sponsors and letting them know that that isn't how U.S. soccer feels and like really um, talking to them about our vision for the game in the future and, and bringing them back in. Um, so after having built those relationships with the sponsors um, and, and continuing to do that, uh, I would have to think that um, having a woman lead the federation um, with my leadership style and team building abilities and vision for the future and uh, keen interest in the women's game um, is front and center and, and top of mind for our sponsors. Now, based on my reporting, I think it's accurate to say that Carlos Cordero is FIFA's preferred candidate in this election. He has an unpaid role as an advisor to the FIFA president, Johnny Infantino. They're pretty close. What do you make of that? 
Yeah, well, I wonder where his loyalties lie. You know, I think everyone knows my loyalties lie with U.S. soccer and soccer within the U.S. and, and also at the same time wanting to grow the game here at home and abroad. Um, I'm not sure where his loyalties lie with FIFA or not. Now, after the most recent Washington Post story detailing more allegations of abuse by the coach Rory Dames at the youth level years ago, several top U.S. women's national team players wrote a letter to you and Cordero demanding immediate action. And I know to some extent you have to wait for the conclusion of the investigation by Sally Yates that's ongoing, but are there some immediate things that U.S. soccer could do right now? Yeah, and we, we've talked to Sally Yates on this um, to please come forward with anything that she finds that we need to immediately act on uh, to make these changes. So she's agreed to do that. Um, so anything that she finds that we need to take immediate action on um, and we'll do so accordingly. Um, I think one of the challenges, and I, and, and I think I fell into this, like wanting to do something immediately, right? Making immediate change. And I think that's kind of the gut reaction that everyone wants, like something's wrong, let's change it, let's fix it. Um, but we wanna make sure that the changes we make, we make are the right changes and are impactful and do move the game forward in order to make sure that every kid, every player um, is safe in our game. And we do everything that we can do to prevent this from ever happening again. Um, so while patience is challenging, I think it's also important to make sure that we're making the right changes and the most impactful changes. You know, there's more than one investigation taking place into this right now. There's the U.S. soccer investigation with Sally Yates. There's an NWSL investigation. There's a Portland Thorns investigation. And there's been some indication that not everyone is participating with all of these investigations, that in some ways they might even be in conflict. What's your sense of, of what's happening there? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I can just speak to the Sally Yates investigation. And one of the challenges that we knew we would face in the Sally Yates investigation is that she doesn't have subpoena power. So players and teens don't have to talk to her if they don't want to. Um, so I would imagine that the other investigations are up against some of the same challenges, um, which would probably slow down the investigations, which, um, so, but I don't know if this is the case or not, but it was something leading into the investigations that we knew ahead of time that could be a challenge. I do want to get into some more detail on this 2020 legal filing that you and, and everyone found offensive that led Carlos Cordero to resign. And at the time, you were the Federation vice president. You were on the three-member litigation committee for U.S. soccer. And you, like Cordero, said you did not see the filing before it went public. But on February 20th, which was more than two weeks before the notorious filing came out, there was another filing that came out in which a lawyer representing U.S. soccer asked Carly Lloyd in a deposition, do you think that the women's team could be competitive against the senior men's national team? And Carly somewhat famously said, I'm not sure. Shall we fight it out to see who wins and then we get paid more? Question mark. And that was a big deal publicly 
as well. And at the time I wrote, like this was shameful from US soccer and it was a bellwether for the even more extreme filing that came that March. My questions for you as a member of the litigation committee would be, one, what do you remember about your reaction to the exchange with Lloyd when it went public? And two, given how concerning that was, why didn't you take the initiative to request that you see all legal filings before their release moving forward? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I don't. I I think that line of questioning is totally out of line. I mean, it, it was uncalled for. Um, and second, um, with the litigation committee, um, I wasn't aware that there was a follow-up legal brief to be filed. Um, so I read the previous one, um, but I, I didn't even know a second one was, was due to be filed until I read it online. And actually someone called me about it. Um, I hadn't even seen it until after it was published and I got a call on it. Um, but I think the challenge here is, is there was a breakdown, you know, at this time, um, when Carlos was president, we were without, um, a CEO and, so processes were not put into place to ensure that the special litigation committee um, received these briefs beforehand. Um, so Carlos was the only one that received it uh, ahead of time. Um, and how much of it he read, I don't know. Um, well, he said one thing, I, other people have said others. I don't know where the truth is and that. Um, but what I do know is that the proper processes were not put into place to, to ensure that the SLC uh, would receive the brief in, in a timely manner in order to read it ahead of time. Um, so we didn't receive that brief. We received the previous one, which I think was a week or two weeks before that filing. So I, I didn't even I, I, know to request the next brief. I mean, I, I guess I would just ask like, if you were in a similar situation again, would you in the future or something ask to see stuff ahead of time before it went public if you were in that spot? Well, yeah, our legal team now knows that they need to present any briefs to the SLC before filing. There was an investigation that US Soccer did into what happened but that's never been made public. Uh, is there any reason that hasn't been made public? Yeah, it's it's a privileged document and confidential. Um, we do this when um, any of our staff are involved in an investigation. Um, so this, this is kind of the way that it has been. Um, and so I'm unable to share with you the findings of that um, due to the privileged and confidentiality of that investigation. And there's no way to get to make that public. That's just not going to happen. It is not going to happen. Right now on the technical side, Ernie Stewart is the sporting director for U.S. soccer, which puts him in charge of the men's and women's national teams. There are general managers, Kate Markgraf, Brian McBride below him. Ernie Stewart's never worked in women's soccer. I have a lot of respect for him, but do you want to see a situation someday when a woman is in Ernie's position and in charge of both the men's and the women's teams? Absolutely. Look at me. 
<laughs> right? I'm not just in charge of the girls and women's side of the game. I'm in charge of the whole U.S. Soccer Federation. So I, I think absolutely, um, you, you know, and, and that's not a knock to Ernie or, or anything. I think Ernie's doing a, a good job. But, you know, I do believe in a future where, you know, the leaders of whether it's our federation or other member association, FAs, um, we're starting to see it more and more in women in leadership positions. Um, so I, I am about excited about the future, and, and I do believe that one day a woman will lead on the sporting side. A couple more questions here with Cindy Parlo Cohn. Appreciate you taking the time. Um, the Athletes Council now has 33% of the vote in this election to match federal requirements. The pro-adult and youth councils have equal percentages, just a slight bit lower than what it was in the elections previously. Um, what's your path to victory in all of this with those councils and those voters? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's talking to each person and, and, and sharing with them my vision, what I have done, what I'm looking to do, what I care about. You know, I feel... You know, I talked to earlier about my mistake of really um, honing in on in, in the representatives to the board and, and not doing enough outreach myself and communicating out um, to the members. Uh, so so that's one thing I've been focusing on in the campaign and, and actually owning up to. Um, and so. I think part of it is talking to them and, and making them realize what, what they've been told about me um, or what they just they, they think has been going on is not necessarily reality. Um, and so, so changing those perspectives a little bit. Um, and I think my true passion for the game comes through and my leadership abilities come through and, and team building capacities um, come through. And then, you know, I think... It's important for the members to hear, um, regardless of what council you're on, is like how how important this game is to me. And and you know, I I was fortunate enough to wear the crest as a player, both on the youth national teams and the senior team, and World Cups and Olympics. Um, and you don't soon forget that. And, and that's, I mean, that is some of the most proud years of my life is being able to wear that and represent my country on the field, um, which I think is important. And as we go into meetings, whether it's sponsors or with FIFA or with media or, or anyone, I think it's important to have someone with my background and my experience um, making soccer decisions. Last one here for you. Is there anything to finish that you would like to say to the voters and U.S. soccer fans? A vote for me is a vote for soccer and growing the game in the U.S. Straightforward. Cindy Parlo-Cohn, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Grant. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Cindy Parlo-Cohn as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>